And it's the same with happiness, like this pursuit of happiness is, is sort of learning to, to listen to your own mind because your mind is where your unhappiness is coming from. You know, that's sort of somewhere inside of you. Everyone else is looking for happiness externally. G'day and welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happier, healthier and more ethical life. Our society puts a lot of emphasis on smarts, but not enough on wisdom. So this podcast seeks out wise people who can share their insights on passion, grit, love and empathy. We'll discuss everything from sport to parenting and hear the stories of some of the world's wisest souls. If you enjoy the podcast, let your friends know so they can share the insights. Now, let's dive in to today's conversation. Alana Hill is one of Australia's great fashion designers. Born in Tasmania, she built her eponymous brand in Melbourne and is now stocked around the world. Her designs are said to be distinguished by their girlish aesthetic, opulent embellishments and vintage romance. Feminine without being saccharine. Hill has published an autobiography, Butterfly on a Pin, and has just released a collection of short stories, The Handbag of Happiness. After a split with her business partner, she now, now no longer designs for the Alana Hill label but instead since 2014 under the brand name Louise Love. Alana, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. Hello. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited. So you grew up in uh, the wonderfully named town Penguin. Uh, I, our family took a holiday in uh, northern Tasmania last year, so I, uh, I did all my morning runs uh, to, uh, to Penguin each morning. Uh, so I can picture it vividly, but uh, you've paint a picture too in your autobiography of what it was like to uh, to grow up there. Tell us a bit about that. Well, I recognised quite early on that I wasn't really like everybody else and I always felt a bit like a misfit and, and a loner. And I think growing up in Tasmania was, look, it was very, very difficult because I um, my parents didn't like children and unfortunately they had five. They were uh, very strict Catholics. They didn't really... Um, my dad was a drunk. Um, my mum had four children under four and then another one. Um, we had a milk bar that was open seven days a week, 24 hours a day, with a service station attached. And um, my father was a very a, a terrifying force in my life. He, he, he did one of the most, uh, one of the things which doesn't even seem that big a thing, but it, he completely and utterly ignored me. And I think that... Um, that really affected me and I was also um, sexually abused by my brother on a train so that really shaped um, a lot of my youth, a lot of my youth and, and what, what I did next and how I wanted to get out of Tasmania and have an impossible dream. Um, but we you know we grew up on an, on an apple orchard as well right down the south in Jeeveston, right down the Huon. We were very very poor, we had a little shack um, and it was you, need, you don't even know you're having a terrible childhood until it's very well over. And then that's when, when that childhood's over and you start realising that you're like a, a bathtub without any, you're just like a bath and the water just goes through. There's no plug to fill up the, the amount of love you need because, you know, a, a loveless childhood is, it can be very, very damaging. It can do a lot of funny things. You know, I, I didn't turn to drink, drink or drugs or, or anything like that. I did other things, I think, to to balance out um, a joyless, loveless childhood that 
I thought it was sort of quite normal until I moved to Melbourne. I think I've answered that question so far that I think I've gone off on a tangent, love. But but uh... but, but it, it it immediately makes me think, Alana, that you're such a bubbly, optimistic person. Uh, and where did where did that love of life and the the zest for creating come from? Given the uh, the the upbringing that you've just described. Well, I don't know if I even um the the lust for life is um it's it's a, that can be that's probably a little bit phony. Um, I can put on a bit of a great act because I. Um, you know, as you get older, like you know, we're all. I think we're all dealing with low level, uh, low level anxiety, low level depression, low level melancholia, low level malaise, and realizing that everyone paddling underneath does help. But um, that's that. I think I was born with a with a vim, and I think a lot of people aren't born with it. And if you've got it and you've got it strong enough, you can overcome anything. And I think I was born with a real drive to, to succeed and to be somebody and to be something. And my parents tried to squash that down because, you know, as my mother would say, you know, you're a nobody, Lana, you're a nobody. You know, they, 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 you had to be very much squashed. And so I realised earlier when I was 15 that it was, I had to run and to get away from them. So I did. And I think that that tenacity is something that I was just, I think people pay thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to see that those great big events and how to be successful, how to be. And I think to myself, I didn't go to those sort of things because, you know, you're wasting your time going to those functions, paying all that money, finding out how to be successful. If, if you, there's no, there's no rule to it. There is something that you have inside you that is, un, it's almost unexplainable. But I guess it's I guess it's drive and ambition and and you know that this whatever it is will fill will hopefully you think it'll fill a hole in you that that nothing else can. And unfortunately, when you climb that mountain, love, you, you climb it and climb it and climb it. You get to the top and you think, yeah, I've made it. Look at my biggest big big success. But you don't feel it. You can't feel it. And you look, you look down the other side and you think, well, I've got to stay up on here on this roller coaster. And that's when it becomes very hard to, to keep going on a, you know, you go from the merry-go-round to the roller coaster. And once you're on the roller coaster, you, you can't get off because if you get off, you'll fail. So I'm spinning on a roller coaster. <laughs> your, uh, your love of clothes, uh, did that... Uh... Did, did that emerge early on? Were you into drawing and uh, and fashion? Were there the... No, no, no. In my household, love, my, my parents didn't tell. There was no pens, no papers, no hobbies, no talking, no interaction, no, no, there was, there was actually nothing. And even when I was writing Butterfly and a Pen, my first memoir, I, I said to my boyfriend, is it weird to have had no pens, no pencils that, that there was nothing in the house, no dolls, not, and he said, "Weird, it's weird." And so, I um, I think my love of clothes came when I was abused by my brother when I was on a train, and I was so, you know, I wanted to be a nun, and and I was so traumatized 
but by this terrible secret, this terrible thing. And I, I, I still carry it to this day thinking, you know, I'm a lot better than I was. Of course, I'm a lot better than I used to be, but it, you know, that does still haunt. It's hard to get over those sort of um, psychological damaging uh, traumas. It, it is like a trauma. And so I, I knew that, you know, when I got back, you know, it happened on a train, I was staying at my nan's and we both had to stay there the night. And I knew that I could either let it affect me to the point of going mental or just try and forget about it because I had my impossible dream to, of being a somebody. And when he did that, I, I went into the bathroom. I covered myself in makeup. I put a curtain around myself, changed my hair. I mean, I looked absolutely ridiculous. I, mean, I would have looked ridiculous and came out and said to my joyless mum who, you know, who didn't know how to love me um, and said, mum, I'm never, ever taking this off. And she said, you look terrible, Lana. Your head's too small. You look like a giant stud. And um, I thought, and no one knows that, no one in the family knew that's what I was doing, but I, I, I kept, I've kept that going since I'm, I was 12 years old and it's the one thing I cling to and that I need to, to it's, 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 it's like a mask. But I've, um, I, I do cling to it a little bit. And no one to this day has seen me without that mask. People think they have, but they haven't. I wear it, I'm always dressed up. I'm always made up and don't like um, being seen um, without my A-grade personality on. You're probably getting my B-grade personality on now because I'm in the home and um, I can't. Well, no. The uh, the thing that the podcast listeners can't uh, can't hear is that you are uh, decked out fabulously. You're in full makeup. You're in a beautiful a beautiful dress. Your hair looks wonderful. You're in front of uh, this uh, this wall, which is has a, a lovely uh, uh, wallpaper on it, uh, and then perched artfully next to you is a uh, is 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 a uh, a lampstand so uh, so you 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 look like something out of a, a sort of uh, a 1960s uh, p- painting uh, the the way you're here and yet you're just here for a zoom conversation which you knew was going to be over audio i did i did and i prepared i prepared like i was going to be performing for madison square garden i, I did i thought that's it. <laughs> that that's um you know that's why I, a lot of people don't understand that covering up that abuse was where my love of clothing came from because I didn't really love fashion. I thought fashion was ridiculous in a way. I, I thought that women who slaved to the fashion magazines and who wore the latest things were a little bit, um, they had no imagination. So I, you know, when I first got to Melbourne, I, I left Tasmania when I was 15, 16, with $50 in my pocket. I had no friends. Nobody knew me. Um, I didn't know a soul. I, I lived in a bed sit in Windsor in a boarding house and could have gone down a very dark path because when you're alone in Melbourne and you're 15 and you've all you've bought is eight suitcases of clothing and you're carrying them up Chapel Street two at a time and you're carrying your eight suitcases up to your new bed sit and the, and the person that greets you is a criminal but you think he's the porter, you're in a bit of trouble. So my best friend in, in Melbourne was a crim. And then one of my best friends is Gillian Armstrong. <laughs> so it's quite, <laughs> she's, she's my best friend because she's, uh, we're, we're, 
with Butterfly and Pins being turned into a a series and Julian Armstrong and I've been working together. But but Butterfly and a Pin really is it's a, it's a it's it was it's a terribly terribly sad book. It's it's a it's very deep and that's very I wrote it in a in a, a cinematic style and it's uh it's haunting because it's a it's about a, how a loveless how an unloved girl who was abused and then later raped by two policemen in Hobart rose up like a phoenix from the ashes. And I don't know, and the book explains why I did that. And then in my new book, The Handbag of Happiness and Other Mistakes. And Misunderstandings, mis- misdemeanours and misadventures. Yeah, I get that wrong all the time. I say misconduct, I say Miss Hill. Because there was, there was, there was about. I, I always get the title wrong, but that that story there is um. So butterfly was, is an epic tale of of um, and then it's quite triumphant at the end. You know, it starts off with my mum's attempted suicide, and ends with a a letter that I write to her, even though she died ten years ago. A letter of saying that I understood why she let me go at fifteen. Because three months before she died, she, she, the light shifted. And then one morning, she just said, I, "I know he did it," and cried and 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 really gave me what I'd needed. But it was far too late. And um, so that was a that's that's the deep dark story there. And then the, the new one is it's still quite. It's it's essentially eighteen short stories on deep subjects that we deal with like shame, embarrassment, grief, um, and with chapter titles like um, the, the faux fur of the fume, the cardigan of solitude, the runner of descent, the brassiere of lovelessness, the baby bonnet of delusion, the collar of disdain. Can you see a link there, Andrew? Can you see a link that there's a, an item of clothing with an emotion? It's a beautiful book and uh, a lovely series of, uh, of tales from your, uh, your, your life. I wanted to ask you about that uh, transition into the world of fashion. So you worked uh, at Indigo Boutique in Chapel Street. Uh, what is it that made you move from working at a boutique to thinking that you could design the clothes in the store? Look, I, um, I've only ever had two jobs and one was Indigo where I stayed for 16 years. And because I was always looking for a family and I wanted to be to show my dad that I was a somebody because he only he was a very vainglorious man and believes that you either had to drive a Cressida, have ambitions to be Malcolm Turnbull's secretary, in Malcolm Fraser's uh, secretary, or you had to have a trophy. And if you didn't have any of those things, you were a nobody. So I was working out, how do I get a trophy? How can I be Malcolm Fraser's secretary? I can't do any typing. Um, and so I walked up and down Chapel Street and w- worked in a, sp- a spaghetti graffiti as a, well, I, I was a barista basically, a barista back then in those days, like 30 years ago, I wasn't a barista, I was just a, a front of house person. And I worked there part-time and Indigo was opposite and it was a little hippie boutique. Uh, and uh, this gorgeous woman owned it and she used to come over and get coffee and one day she asked me, if I'd like to trial in the boutique. And I, I thought, oh, I can't believe she's asked me to trial. So I've trialed in the boutique and I still was there 16 years later. After um, 10 years, I started bringing in ideas, 
because they're, they, they've got too hippie. And so actually in my first month, I told them they had to get rid of all the hippie things, all the, all the, um, the linen dresses had to go, the wedding dresses with all the bells on them, the incense, they couldn't play tubular bells anymore. We had to punk up. We had to get bit, get rollicking and they were a bit, you know, they were nice, really nice hippie. Well, they were my family, I thought. And so they adjusted the whole hippie store and we turned it into a, like a, a Japanese uh, Tokyo Harajuku, you know, kindergarten hall type shop. I know that's a terrible thing to say, but it was like, it was very Courtney Love. It was, and it was, it was pumping. The business was pumping. And that's when I, after about four years, I said, I got bored just working on the shop floor. And I started bringing in ideas of aprons, Buffalo girl dresses, ridiculous things that I was wearing at the time that was like quite post-punk and a bit and quite blitz. And my first item was aprons. I, I, I said, we need to make aprons. And they thought aprons, who's going to buy an apron? And of course, nobody did buy the aprons, although Danny and Carly Minogue did buy two aprons, which I was pretty happy about when that, that would have been about five. And um, then I, they started believing me a little, a little bit more when I designed a dress that sold out. And then they gave me my own label within the store after about 10 years, which was Alana Hill. And after 16 years, my past had really crept up on me. I, uh, I was starting to, um, if any, if I thought my bosses liked any of the new staff anymore, more than me, I would be, I would do things to make them love me more. Like it was, I was, it was upstairs. It was like upstairs, downstairs with the lovely parents upstairs and all the kids downstairs, but me being the one that was playing out my childhood in real life with, with, with other people. And I just didn't, didn't realise at the time I blamed everybody else. I thought, what's wrong with you all? I'm the king of this castle. I'm the boss. I'm the head child. I got here first. They love me more. And then they sacked me, which, which was, you know, I, I can't, I, people who've had a short childhood like mine have abandonment issues, terrible abandonment issues. And so when they did that, I thought I was going to pass out. In fact, I couldn't get off the chair and thought, where will I go? What will I do? I went back. I was living in an old uh, haunted mansion in, in Turak, uh, Illawarra. It's called Illawarra House. And I, I was so utterly devastated and ashamed, you know, that they, the reason that that sacked me was they, they thought that I had, uh, I had big ideas. They wanted to be more like a cottage industry. And I was slowly building a brand in that story, except I didn't know it. Like I wanted my label to be everywhere. I wanted them to change the name from Indigo to Alana Hill. Um, and they said that, you know, I basically I'd taken over and I needed to step back. And so I felt like a terrible, my misjoins, I was triggered. I don't like that word that much triggered, but everything triggered me. So I, I, I get devastated for about two days. And then I know, and, and this is what a lot of people don't understand that if, if you, we, I was responsible for my own life. I knew that nothing was gonna, no one was gonna help me. No one was gonna save me. I had to, I had to do it myself because there is, it is ultimately up to us. Because if, if you rely on anybody else, you're stuffed. So after two days, I went for a job at the Baldwin Cinema as an usher. Now I'd had 16 years of fashion training and I was rejected because they said I wasn't experienced enough. And then I heard, um, after about, th I, I couldn't, I could not get a job. And then someone told me about a, 
a company that made clothes for Target and Kmart, and maybe I could go along there and be a production assistant. Now, production assistant is not, it's very low level. And I thought, yeah, I could go and be a production assistant for Target. So I went into for an interview. There was a, a guy with a keen eye there. And after the interview, he said, Do you know what? I'm going to give you, um, you've you got to hide in that cupboard. I don't want the CEO to see you. I'm going to pay you 80 grand a year. You're a consultant. But if the, if the, if the CEO sees you, he's going to go nuts because I've already spent too much money. So look, hide <laughs> in the cupboard. don't let anyone see you. He's drinking scotch the whole time. And, and he's obviously a, a little bit loopy. And he said, if you come out of that cupboard and you produce a 90-piece collection that you can sell around Australia, I'll give you give you a proper job. We might we might open up stores. And I did that. I hid in the cupboard. I I didn't come out. I then when I finally I did I produced 90 pieces of 70 designs. I, I came out to mingle with the target staff so they could make my patterns and then I had to go back to the cupboard and and I, I had the, the 70 to 90 piece collection. I went around Australia. I had a set of appointments in hotel rooms with all the lots of buyers and just I, I'm, I'm quite a good I'm quite a good sales girl and so I sold I think 800,000 even sold to David Jones came back Chris Rook from the, the company dialogue was thrilled with me and as soon as I came back two days later 12 men walked in I didn't know who the hell they were but they said put down your pencil down your paper you're in administration this company's in administration and just continue as normal. There's there's a lot of uh, makers out the front with chains. Uh, they haven't been paid. Ignore them when you leave. And I thought, oh my god. So I was devastated because I had my my impossible dream was being squashed once again by men, by men. And then luckily for me, Bit of the same here. Yeah. And then luckily for me, I um, David Heaney from Factory X. He owned Dangerful at that time. And he'd grown up with selling hearses and 60s dummies and things from op shops in a, in a tat shop in Fitzroy Street. And then he branched out into clothing into Dangerfield. And then he came along to Dialogue and bought my $800,000 worth of forward orders. He bought all the sewing machines, uh, a pattern maker, a sample machinist. And I didn't know it at the time, love, but he bought me as well. Because, you know, I didn't know about trademark law. What did I know about trademark law? Nothing. And so, I, you know, I went, I went to, a lot of people thought I owned Alana Hill. And I was, you know, I was an employee, a very well-paid employee, but I was an employee with, you know, with a lot of power. But after about, you know, it was going great. I just loved it. I really loved it. And David was very business savvy. But then when we, we, we went online and then I lost, I lost creative control for some reason. And I, I made a, a terrible faux pas at a David Jones fashion collection launch. And that faux pas he thought was so terrible that that's, we, we fought from then on. And then when it became, basically he, I, I gave him a choice. I said, either you give me creative control back or I'm leaving. And that's when I went to a lawyer for the first time in 15 years, which I should have done very early on, and realised that with trademark law, even if you don't uh, sign your name over, if you've worked somewhere for more than 10 years and you've received a wage or made money out of it, 
to fight that to get your name back would be a million dollars. And that, that really did crush me because that, that brand wasn't just a brand to me. It was, it was my armour. It, it filled every one of my little triggers from childhood. I could create fashion shows. I was in charge. I had all these girls working for me. I was respected. My parents, of course, didn't know anything about it, but that was another thing. Um, I feel like you and uh, you and Dick Smith could have an interesting conversation about what it's like to, uh, to to have your name now associated with a company that you're not a part of. Uh, but I, I'm curious too as to as to how the aesthetic developed in that uh, that period because your your style is so distinctive. You know, sort of vintage, the vintage chic uh, approach. Uh, I mean, did you? Uh, where did what, what what inspired it, and how quickly did you come into that style? Is your early work uh, in, in that same, same style too? I think I I really do think my style emerged from those curtains, like from early early on when I put those curtains around myself. My first ever everything I designed was a, a quite a tacky lace polyester dress. And I didn't realise at the time, but that was the first thing I designed. And from then on, it was really about empowering women. And, and I would have to come up with a thousand designs a season, a year, a thousand designs. So half of the collection was, was things, it was bread and butter basics that I could design very easily. And the other half was, I had seven girls in mind in my head when I designed. There was a, you know, there was a sex kitten. There was a secretary. There was a an abused girl. There was a, a divorced woman. There was an unhappy woman. And I, I sort of knew what unhappy women wanted to wear. Not unhappy women, but women who were a bit lost, or who, who, who understand that putting their best foot forward often means putting on a costume and putting on a mask. And once you've got that mask on, you can. It gives you a kickstart for the day, like making your bed. If you make your bed every day, as soon as you get up, you know it's very hard to get back into a, a bed that's made. That, that's, that's another trick. But the, you know, a lot of men underestimate the 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 power of, of clothing. They always say, "Oh, you women, you know, going out there bloody shopping, spending all your bloody money. What does make you women happy? Nothing makes you women happy. What makes you happy?" And in my new big book, I do explain to men what does make women happy, and I think they'll get a bit of a shock when they read what makes women happy. But the vintage style, I think, came from reinventing after reinvention after reinvention of, of a, a sort of an Alice in Wonderland woman that's, that wanted to be uh, adored and loved and, and seen. Like if you could see an Alana Hill woman a, a mile away, you know, I did the handbag, I did the shoes, I did the fascinators. It was all, you know, it was top to toe on Anna Hill. And, and you know, the, I, I, building a brand is, is you have to start with, and that's one thing that in a funny way, I know this sounds a bit weird, but I was almost grateful for my terrible childhood because when I started telling the, doing my first interviews when I had first came out with my first collection at Factory X, although everyone thought it was, that I owned it. It was Alana Hill. Um, they were the they were the backers. Um, I you know I tell them about how I grew up in a milk bar, how I grew up in an apple orchard, and I didn't tell them the full truth, but just enough. And and, and that story 
mixed with, I think, my honesty and my bravado and and my vim and my whim. My, you know, I, I was ambitious. I, I didn't realise it, but I was ambitious. I think that and understanding women and having an understanding of what women wanted and what they needed. You know, a lot of women don't want to wear, you know, ridiculous fashion with, with cut-off midriff tops and, and silly pants. And, and I, I, like, I like women who are very feminine. Like, I didn't design any pants. I very rarely designed pants. I, I love women who are, you know, ladylike and old-fashioned and, and come across as, you know, strong... Strong pussycats. <laughs> that sounds terrible, but it's hard to explain that to how I, I just I just loved I loved looking quite unreal, and I loved a, a bauble. I loved a pocket. Near the end, near the end, I was I wasn't allowed to do pockets because there was pockets on everything, and the boutiques I called them boutiques, but they were always um, the girls in there were trained to be almost like psychologists, because I, I wanted the boutiques to have beautiful change rooms lovely seats out the front where women would sit and natter and sometimes people would stay all day and where men could also come in and I had some men's magazines some sporty magazines I had um I had a couple of playboys there and that would keep the men entertained while while I made the women or, or the women spent their money well I want to I want to push you on one thing which is that um, uh, I, I need you to defend high heels for me uh, as uh, as a as a feminist, I've always kind of seen high heels as uh, as something uh, shoes that make it harder to walk, uh, that uh, uh, put women into a style which uh, uh, you know designed for uh, to, to appeal to men rather than to practicality and to be able to get it, get about. But you love high heels, and the handbag of happiness has a big defence of them. So uh, tell me what's great about high heels. Well, actually, love because I'm so paradoxical. There's, there's two stories. One of them is called The Runner of Descent, and that's where uh, that starts off with, I'm the type of person who used to imagine that I'd disappear into thin air and vanish for eternity if I was ever insane enough to step out in a casual runner or a sneaker. I worried that I'd lose my bloom, fall off my glittery stilts and drift away. I'd lose part of myself and become ordinary, vapid, wishy-washy, cold-hearted and really, really short. That's what I thought would happen if I didn't wear a high heel because I thought, and then there's the other, the, the other story about the high heel is just the killer heel of utopia, which is where I was in Tokyo on a on business trip and I wore, the, I wore the high heels 24-7. I was, you know, I stomped the streets of Tokyo for 10 hours a day in you know, 12 centimetre Louis Vuittons. I was in agony and often in a bad mood, but didn't realise it. And one, one afternoon, one morning, I tried to slip my tired, bruised feet into the high heels and look, they wouldn't squeeze in. So I thought I'll get out my Hello Kitty band-aids and I covered my bunions and all the dreadful things that um, high heels can do, including something called hammer toe, which is something where the front of the toe just sort of bends like a hammer. And I did notice in the hotel room when I was trying to squeeze my feet into the Louis Vuittons um, that's, that there was a hammer, of, uh, my toe looked like a hammer. And I thought, what am I going to do? I, I cannot go out without a high heel. And I did what any normal, I think, businesswoman would do when their feet are blown up. 
I, I, I dipped them into the toilet bowl and flushed the toilet and thought that'll, that'll get down the swelling. That didn't work. So in the end, I thought, stuff it. I wore the hotel slippers. I put the hotel slippers on and it was all dressed up like a, like, like a Miu Miu model and scuffed my way to a high heel store to get my, little, you know, my high heels. But as I walked past, I thought, I saw a casual runner store. And I thought, will I? Could I? Should I? Maybe I could wear a, could I wear a casual runner? And so I walked into that store in Tokyo, bought a casual runner. And I tell you what, my mood completely shifted. I realised I'd been, I had a look on my face, the trip of turkey. My, I wasn't angry anymore. I was comfortable. I, I thought I could fly. And I even put the hotel slippers on my earring, on my ears, there's like little earrings, and maybe one on my head as well. And I was so delighted with, with it. And I find it hard to tell you the truth now, Andrew, to don a high heel. I, I'm in a runner now. I'm in a casual runner. And if someone had to said to me, said to me six years ago, you would have been a casual runner in six years, I would have slain them. I would have slain them. But now I, you know, because a high heel does elevate a woman. It, 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 it does something to your calves, you're thrust forward, you're more confident, you feel like you can take on the world. And you're taller, you're closer to God, your hips are smaller, everything's better in a high heel. And you, it does convey a, a very strong message. And I always saw women in a runner, a runner as a, well, a very casual person, a flippy floppy person. And I talk about those sort of people in, in one of the chapters as well about their how we as mothers judge ourselves. And from the first day you went, you had the school ground with, with your kitty, other mothers are judging you, you're judging the other mothers. And of course, I was in the high heel and it's not a good look to turn up at court to nine. You're already late. Um, you look, you're high heeled, you go into the classroom, you make a bit of a squawk, you make a bit, make a bit of a noise and, you start to get a bit of a that bad name in the high heel. So when I donned the runner, I immediately got a few more friends at the school. So I asked you to defend high heels, and uh, and you've turned into their uh, their their chief chief critic. I love it. Uh, you're, uh, you're you're a mum of a, a, a teenage son, Edward. Uh, how has your childhood shaped your notion of what it is to be a, to be a good mum, and and particularly what it is to be a fun mum? Well, um, I actually dedicate my new book to my son, for my son Edward. Our children will always be the sun around which we spin long after they've untied our apron strings and their baby hands, the only hands of which we can never let go. Now, if someone had warned me that when they turn 12 years old, you kiddies, they don't want to know you. They don't like you. They think you're uncool and you are forever as a mother living with a bit of a broken heart because your child's sort of you know, they break up with you a little bit every single day. And I, I find that, I'm finding that incredibly difficult. And I think a lot of parents, a lot of mothers and fathers are suffering with this silence, low-level sadness that the, they realise they love their kitty a whole lot more than their kitty loves them until we're dead and then they love us and it's all too late. So, you know, you can't do a thing right. I, 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 I find the teenage years... I could, write a, I could write a book about it because I have done it. I've, I've been an FBI mum. I've been a cool mum. I've been a, a fun mum. 
you know, I, I did all the wrong things. And so that's part of the reason I wanted to write the anti-self-help book, to show parents that to learn by my mistakes. You know, it, you cannot explain the love for your child. It's, it's, it's ridiculous and it's unfair in a way because they, they're under your skin for the rest of your life and they're trying to get out of your skin for the rest of their lives. And it's, a huge, it's such a massive responsibility to be a, a, good, a good mother and, and, show, and show a good example. And that's what's exhausting because sometimes you can't be bothered showing a good example. Sometimes you just want to go, oh, stuff it. But you've, always, you've got to be watchful. He, I just put him first. So um, there's a, that, that chapter is um, called The Apron Strings of Lament. And it, it deals with how we, as mothers, cannot let our children go and the sadness that creates and how that leads on to another chapter, which is the blessing gown of silent sadness, which is when we feel the blues coming. And a lot of people feel the blues coming and ignore it. They, they feel the thunderclouds and they don't know how to deal with it because a lot of people don't know how to be alone and they're scared of being alone. And if you're scared of being alone, you will do anything to not be alone. And the only way to learn to be alone is to be alone. So it's, it's, it's a double-edged sort of um, existential crisis. And by knowing, you have to learn to know yourself. And so when I feel the blues coming, I detach from the world. I, I know exactly what I have to do, which is be alone and not take any calls, not look at emails um, and keep busy in the apartment all day, like I sweep, I, I you know, it, it is all about keeping busy and, and having that strength of character to think no one is going to fix me. You, you know, you cannot build a house on crumbling foundations and expect it to stay intact. That's like, that's a metaphor for childhood that's bad. So even though it can't be intact, you can, you can build a life for yourself that isn't perfect, that tragedy and that trauma will always be there. People think that they can run from their past and that they'll never have to face it. But if you run from it, you know, the past always catches up with you. And But work's gotten you a long way, hasn't it? I mean, you're, you see, it's, it's, the, it, it's a big constant when I look through your life. Uh, the, uh, the work of, uh, of raising a, a child as a single mum, the incredible managerial work and that huge design work. I mean, the sheer number of things that you have designed is, uh, is just phenomenal. Uh, I feel like that work ethic is, is almost like the, the spine of your career. It is. I, I knew early on to keep, I mean, you know, even though mum, mum didn't, you know, I, I loved her and we had a sort of a special relationship and she was very black and very funny and very wicked and her put downs were so incredible. She was so clever at it that I picked up, you know, if there's anything, if there's an upside to an abusive, joyless childhood, and there is an upside, there is one, and that is that I think it gives you a, a, a like I can walk into any room and, and detect where the bullshit is. I can detect because you, you've grown up with so much drama and so much unrest that you can you can spot uh, trouble and if a good if a good, good if a person's got good values or bad values or if they're going to be trouble for you and you learn to basically stay away from everybody <laughs> you basically learn that everyone can be trouble and 
and that you know the you can't put a wise head on young shoulders. And so trying to tell your kids that as well is a waste of time. Um, but, the, but keeping busy and being, not being, I don't even know what success is because I, I never, I don't think any successful person has ever looked in the mirror and thought, yep, I've made it on the success. None of us really, you can't really feel it. And it's the same with happiness, like this pursuit of happiness that people are striving for. Every I'm not happy, I'm not happy, look at her, I'm not happy. Happiness is very, you know, you, you have to, without those down times, without those sad times, without those self-reflective times, which are, which unfortunately come more regular than happiness because happiness doesn't really last. It, it, it doesn't last that long. And that's, that's the trick to the book. It, it, lasts a certain amount of time or allotted a certain amount of it. But I think the pursuit of it is, um, is, is sort of learning to, to listen to your own mind because your mind is where your unhappiness is coming from. And so that's, you know, that's sort of somewhere inside of you. Everyone else is looking for happiness externally. Like I actually, we're all looking for it externally. It's, it's one of the stories in the book, which is the handbag of happiness, which where I actually thought, I would be happy for the rest of my life if I secured myself a designer handbag. I mean, tragic. I was like, I was 49 and I didn't believe in spending $4,000 on handbags. I preferred to spend that on kitchens, on marble kitchens, a complete waste of money. So I went into Bergdorf Goodman, slapped the $4,000 on the counter, got the Bergdorf, the, the Mew Mew glittery handbag and thought, yeah, I was going to levitate. I was that happy for 10 minutes for 10 minutes and then I thought eh. you know I, I pushed it along as much as I could I went and got a hamburger and had a diet coke and had the handbag and I thought look at me everybody I'm an I'm an accomplished woman I have got a four thousand dollar bag and then after 10 minutes I didn't it didn't really I didn't, didn't I didn't care I didn't I was back to being just me and that's you know the other part of the, the book is to like you take yourself wherever you go which is it's a silly little saying, but you do, you take yourself wherever you go. Because I had thought, you know, you think you're going to be happy in a high heel, you think you're going to be happy with buying a new handbag, but, but the happiness, you need to have work out in your own mind how to, how to make yourself happy because exter nothing externally will do it. It will for 10 minutes and then it's gone. And learning how to, to learn how to be happy without being, having all those platitudes of, you just got to learn to grow. You just got to let go of the past. You just got to, like, I hate those platitudes. Nothing is worse when you're struggling and someone says, chin up. You know, well, you know, if your mother dies, oh, she, that's, that, it was a good innings, the good innings. They use sporting metaphors over deaths. And that's when you get really, um, you know, I don't like those sort of metaphors of, of, of mental health. But I think it's, it, it is the tiny things. And I, I know this is corny. And it's probably against everything I had. It's, it is, I try to think it's anti-self-help, but it is sort of self-help. I think the, the thing to do for happiness, and I know it's really silly, but I have found that if I do something kind or do something compassionate for somebody or, or, or show some compassion or kindness towards someone every day, I feel a little bit good about myself. I think, yeah, look at me, yeah. I, I, you feel you, you feel the, their joy, and that joy is quite catchy. And because misery loves company, you can hang out with miserable people and be miserable and be miserable by yourself. 
but if you can just force yourself to do a little act of kindness, it, it does it, it does give you a kickstart to the day. That with your suit of armor, you know, there's there's, there's a lot to do. It's, it's very hard to be happy. It's much easier to be sad. You know, the the, the negative side always yaps to the um to the side and to the other side, and you've just got to you've got to let the other side win, which is takes a lot of strength and a lot of courage and there will be fear and there will be failure but that's sort of the human sort of fragility of life isn't it i was going to uh, to to ask you when you were most happy mm. isn't that it's, it's such a big question love when i was most happy because i don't quite know what the happiness you know i only think it's for 10 minutes at a time um I think I was most happy. I don't like to think of it in the past because that would make me feel a little bit, a little bit worried about the future. So I fear that question, and I think I might have to say this very moment, because I know if I go back in time, I'll just think, yeah, how do I get, how do I get that back? It was probably, it was probably when I first fell in love. You know, that is an intoxicating feeling, and. I hadn't been told. I'd, no one had told me I, they loved me ever. I was I was I was seventeen. I met this boy, and I was in, in Melbourne. I'd caused. I was starting to get a little bit of a reputation. I was in the arty scene. I was. Um, I got my job at Indigo. I had a little safe family with them, and I was I was on the up and up. I went from a I went from a bedsit to a boarding house, yeah, to a to a to an, um, a shared accommodation, but um. Yeah, falling in love, nothing beats falling in love and nothing hurts quite as, you know, the first cut is the deepest. But I'm, I'm, I'm not happy. I'm not, I'm not happy every single day. I'm, I'm, I'm content and I get the blues, but I also zip around with a lot of vim with um, going in with very, very low expectations. I think that's the trick to life as well. You expect nothing. And then I'm very surprised at the end when things work out. But there's also another side of me that is is very driven. What advice would you give to your teenage self? None. That's, that, it's a very sound none because I wouldn't have listened, love. Yeah, I wouldn't have listened to anybody. And, you know, when you that, that question, I know, I know you meant to say, look, I would have said to myself, don't be so hard on men, don't be so, um, don't wait till you're 39 to have a baby with someone that was, didn't really want a family um, and he's 10 years younger than you. I could say all that, but it's, it's all a little bit pointless. So I, I wouldn't have, I, I like to say that I, you, you don't listen to advice until it's well over. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Any guilty pleasures? I, I'm, I don't, I, these days, even though I'm, I'm, I'm a lapsed Catholic and I had that dreadful childhood, I've managed to get rid of the guilt. So the pleasures that I'm having, no guilt attached, love. No guilt whatsoever. I'm having mini magnums for breakfast. Um, I'm quite proud of my um, the, the pleasures that are meant to be. What are guilty pleasures, love? Is it? I don't even know what they are. What's one of yours? Share it with us. You need to share that guilty pleasure with us now, love. What is it? Uh so, so mine is exercising uh, to to a point where I'm away from the family for too long, 
Uh, so doing 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 things like uh, ultra marathons and uh, ridiculously long bike rides and so on, uh, where I'm enjoying it. But you know, three 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 little kids uh, and a and and uh, uh, family are probably better to balance the exercise slightly more normally. You really genuinely love exercise. Yeah, yeah. Something wrong with your life. <laughs> Look, it's really you love. To exercise, I find that flabbergasting. You don't, you don't enjoy sport. Oh no, love! But I have heard that there are endorphins. But look, I think I'm getting a lot more endorphins from sweeping, from learning to be alone, from a bit of solitude, from eating my mini magnums, and not being seen gasping him around on the streets, Andrew, on a bike when you should be home with your family. You should be home with your family. You want. Is it true you've never been outside without makeup? No, no one's. Look, it is. It is love, and it is. As I, I explained to you before, love. The makeup is is not because I is. It's the armor. It's the. I don't want to see that. I don't want to look at that twelve year old face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's true. Yeah, I mean, uh, you've you've never thought you'd you would take it on as a challenge one day. You know, there's this old story of the uh, the Greek Stoics that they would uh, occasionally put on deliberately unfashionable clothing and go down to the public square in order to experience the scorn of others and remind themselves that uh, it wasn't so bad after all. Well, that's there's, there's a, a chapter in my book called uh, The Handkerchief of Bravado, where I, you know, you think of the very worst thing that you the very worst thing that you think is going to happen to you. And the shame of that, of, of that. And mine wasn't the makeup. Mine was where I, I had, um, I was having dental work done, and I had implants, and I had three implants at the front, and they were just hanging by a thread because I was, you know, they have the temporary ones, and I had to go to the to the races. And every time I said S, the words, I could feel the temporary uh, crown slipping. And unfortunately, when I was speaking to the CEO of David Jones, I think I might have said sexy, salubrious, seductive, and two of the crowns flew, flew through the air. One landed in his drink and one landed on the floor. And he actually said to me, oh, God, he said, oh, I must be drunk. I could have sworn I saw some teeth flying through the air. And I thought I was going to die. I did. I, I, I actually did. And I fell to the ground and thought, well, the ground will eat me up and I'll die now because this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. But that's the thing. I, I scrounged around. I found a Mentos, one of those little chewy-up lollies. I put it in, stuck it in the front. I found the teeth and just put my hand over my mouth and just ran to the, to the waiting limo and thought that's I've lived through the worst thing. I've lived through one of the worst shames of my life. And I, I didn't die. It wasn't terrible. And that's... You know, the, the because with the stories, with each with the ending, I ended all with the pearl of wisdom. Like the, the chapter's quite hilarious and funny and, and, and wise. And then there's the ending is always a pearl of wisdom or a cautionary tale of of not of how how it would have been a better way of handling it or or how do you take the um e out of shame and turn it into a sham. That's so going out without makeup. It's it's, it's it'd be more. It's, 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 it's not like it's the challenge, uh, the fear of losing, you know, having the dream of losing all your teeth. I don't know. No, I've never taken up the challenge. It's something I couldn't. It'd be like saying to you, 
love, have you ever thought about going outside with your ears cut off and, mm. and, and a wig and a lady's dress? And, and yeah, do that. Like, that's, that's, it's, it's, I think it's, look, I think it's the, the, uh, it's a way to deal with the trauma. So it's always like, oh, that would, it would probably be very revealing. Uh, what's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? What I do with um, when I'm feeling the blues and for my mental health is because I've got Vim, I'm not the type that sort of lies in bed and just can't get out of bed. But my, my depression comes more like, you know, a sense of pointlessness and an existential angst. And so how I deal with it is I, and it's usually if I've got nothing much to do for two or three days, if I've um, finished the chapter or I've, 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 I've had a meeting with Gillian or something fabulous like that, and I'm an, I haven't got anything to work towards that day because you have to have a point to the day. If you, if you don't have a little goal for the day, your day becomes meaningless and a little bit of kindness every day. So I try to do that little kind, compassionate um, act of kindness for somebody, which sounds really like I'm a newborn Christian, but I'm really not. Um, I close the curtains. I sit alone and just think, maybe it's meditation, I don't know, but I try to blank out uh, bad thoughts and then pretty much feel better for about an hour. And that's the incredible thing. Two hours later, I'm back to being how I was before. So I, I worry, I, I think, yeah, it's, it's, the self-help lasts for a little amount of time as, as happiness does sometimes. But I, it's, not, it's not like I'm doing anything you know, everyone does something different. I think that yours is obviously exercising, dear, and mine's doing things like sweeping and, and moving, turning a lounge room into a bedroom and then maybe turning the kitchen into the bathroom. Like I do a lot of re-creative people when, when they can't release their creativity because it fills up, their whole, it fills up a hole they've got. I tend to change the house around and change whole rooms. Jung, um, Carl Jung once said it's a, it's a thing that people who are, who suffer the trauma often do. They, they can't be, be still and so they change their environment continually. It's a Jungian thing. Yep. And I, and I, 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 um, I, I, suppose I, I write. I write, but I'm not the type to just sit down and write how gloomy I am. I have to have, um, you know, a, a goal because I, I don't like time wasting. I don't, I don't like time wasters. I think if you're going to do something, do it well, do it properly, and don't just like, don't do it in a Mickey Mouse style. You've got to be, and, and, and I think it helps that I'm an Aries. What are you, Andrew? I'm a Leo, though I've always struggled with the idea that personality types come month by month. Of course you do. Of course you do. But but there's something, there's just something. Although I didn't, you know, there's something in it. Um, did I answer that question? Absolutely. Final question. Which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Oh, love, can you explain to me what an ethical life is? A good, a good life? Uh, your, um, your notion of doing kindnesses to others? I, you know, I'm perhaps curious as to where that, that comes from. Uh, but you've brought an enormous amount of joy into, into thousands of people's lives. So I'm curious as to what the wellspring is for that. I, I honestly struggle with trying to come up with somebody. I think I taught myself. I, I think, I, look, it's, 
No, I'm going to tell you the, who the real truth. I tell you what it was. It was the Waltons, the family of the Waltons. I, I don't know if any public would remember it, but it's an American show. But the Waltons to me were how I wanted to live my life. They were kind to each other. John Boyd was upstairs. It was good night, John Boyd, good night, Mary Ellen. My sister's name is Mary Ellen, so I thought they were speaking to me with another language that I could be a Walton. And my nan, actually, my nan and my nan and mum, even though you'd have to read Butterfly and the Pin to find out what, what, what the story is there with mum and I, but but nan, they were very they were very Catholic. They taught me you know, about morals, never to sleep with a never to sleep with someone until you're in love with them. And they taught me my old-fashioned values and old, old. I've got quite old-fashioned girly ways. And I think, yeah, it was probably my mum and nan, which is quite, I've just, I've just had an epiphany, love. I've had an epiphany on the Andrew Lee show there. <laughs> that, uh, the person that I most thought was my protagonist turns out to be someone I actually gave me my morals and values. Isn't that weird? Life is weird and yours is as fascinating as, as anyone's. Uh, Alana Hill... Thank you so much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. I've really, really enjoyed it. And everybody go out there and buy your wife or your partner the handbag of happiness and find out the key to what makes women happy. It's, it's a cracking read. Thank you, Alana. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Sheridan Harbridge, Jack Heath and Cordelia Fine. On the theme of living well, Nick Terrell and I have a new book out titled Reconnected, a Community Builder's Handbook. We reckon it'd make a great Christmas gift. We love getting feedback, so please leave a rating or, or better yet, tell a friend about the podcast. It really helps others find it. We'll be back next week with another guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.